This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. Ziad Moussa is a multidisciplinary independent development professional specializing in local governance and evaluation. Over the past 18 years, Ziad has worked across the entire Middle East and North Africa, the Mediterranean countries involved in the Euromed process, and significant parts of the African continent. Ziad's track record in local governance and decentralization include leadership roles in key regional initiatives and the resource centers on urban agriculture and food security. Ziad's work in evaluation has included several large-scale evaluations for IFAD, ILO, the European Union, and IDRC, among others. Ziad is a former board member of the International Development Evaluation Association and a former leader of the MENA Evaluation Association. I spoke with Ziad in Amman, Jordan. Ziad, thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. My absolute pleasure. Ziad, where am I calling you today? Where are you located? Well, actually, I'm located in Beirut, but today we're speaking from Amman. Uh-huh. It's, uh, it's quite hot today, uh, but this summer has been uh, relatively mild as compared to the hot summers of Amman uh, the last few years. Ahlan Musahan. Excellent. Ziad, can you tell us, uh, what is it that you do right now as an independent consultant, as a development professional? What are the projects you're working on right now? Yeah, I think uh, a friend of my daughter asked her uh, this this question. I have my my daughter Sarah is is nine years, and she said uh, my father wakes up on Monday, takes the plane, and come back home on uh, on Friday. So practically, this is uh, what I do. Um, I uh, have a double hat. Uh, I work as an evaluator and as a local local governance uh, professional. And right now, I'm almost dividing my time equally between a very interesting project uh, taking place here in Jordan and targeting uh, uh, as part of the response to the Syrian crisis. Um, so we're helping uh, UNHCR and the Zatari camp, which is the second largest refugee camp in the world, and setting up uh, some kind of uh, innovative approaches to uh, the humanitarian response. And I'm also engaged in a couple of uh, very interesting evaluations. Tell me a little bit more about the uh, UNHCR Zatari project right now. It, if I don't have it wrong, that's looking at these camps from a municipal structure. Is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, uh, part of the uh, what can, we can call a 2.0 response is that a humanitarian crisis in the third uh, uh, in the third millennium um, are more or less uh, becoming much more complex. So you don't see uh, this uh, con- concentration uh, almost exclusively in refugee camps and there are new parameters coming in. So, uh, for example, um, new paradigms such as waste of to energy so that the waste produced by the refugees can a bit uh, fuel up their uh, their energy consumption, either the the buses that are touring the camp, or uh, also for uh, electric uh, production or uh, or consumption. Um, there's also this this entire issue of uh, of connectivity, like uh, uh, how do you provide, especially to uh, adolescent uh, refugees. The opportunity to pursue online education uh, while being stuck in the camp, stuck in the camp, and waiting uh, for the crisis to end. Um, it's, a, it's a very important paradigm um, in terms of prepare, not losing uh, an entire generation of, of refugees. What what UNICEF 
calls it the lost generation. Um, it also has to do on how do you engage the refugee population in uh, reflective uh, processes around governance, around day-to-day management, etc. And most importantly, how do you deal with the uh, with a camp, in our case, Zatari, uh, not as an island or as a prison or as a reclusion space, but rather as a space within a social and urban tissue with linkages and interactions with its broader community. And this is why our project has two uh, main pillars. One of them uh, is working in the camp and one of them ensuring that whatever is being done in the camp is in harmony and in synergy with the uh, sector-wide policies of the Jordanian government, especially the Mafraq region, which is where the Zakari camp is located. Mm, I was just going to ask that. I'm glad that you ended with that because I know in Jordan there's been camps there for for as long as anybody can remember, and that's always <laughs> been one of the tensions. You know, how how does the how does that actually work within the locality? Actually, from a, from a Arab perspective, since you're touching on that issue. Um, People are a bit, uh, have, have a bit the, the whole uh, Palestinian issue in mind. Uh, so some of the temporary camps that were set 65 years ago are still there, whether in Jordan or in Lebanon or in Syria or, or what have you. So the whole issue is how do you keep in mind the right and return? How do you ensure livelihoods? But at the same time, how do you ensure decent standards of living uh, for the re- refugees? And, 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 and taking into consideration uh, the, the, the raging news uh, around us now, how do you keep uh, security, territorial integrity, what have you? So it's quite a complex issue. Balance that for me. You know, how do you balance your mental, you know, state as well as your career with the evaluation that you're working on right now about the Syrian refugees? Is there complementarity between that work? Are they completely different things? Um, and what, what's your time balance between those two projects? But roughly, that, let's start by the end. The time balance is roughly uh, 40% on the refugee business, 60% on evaluation. And evaluation to me is a state of mind, is a, a form of being, is an approach to development much more than it's a, um, it's a professional niche. Um, I discovered it quite late in my career. Um, which was uh, in 2007, and I've been in development since 1994-5 when I finished my my master's degree. Um, but then, to me, it was a bit of a revelation. N- not the the linear uh, type of evaluation that summarizes the whole world and an input-output uh, outcome impact. A, a chain where everything is uh, foreseeable in advance and start at a certain point and ends at a certain point, uh, but rather the, the evaluation that it gears, uh, that is geared uh, towards the transformational processes uh, that any uh, development intervention entails and where changes in behavior, where, uh, you know, those little things that add, adds up uh, towards a better life or a better environment or a better economic condition really matters, uh, matters most. Um, so this is how I approach evaluation and I try to apply these principles and paradigms into my uh, work in local governance. And it seems that the soup is taking quite well. 
That's fantastic. <laughs> you mentioned you've been doing this for a while. What, uh, and by doing this, I mean you've been a development professional for a while or a humanitarian aid professional. How did you find your way into this profession? Take us back to, you know, before 1998. Ula, 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 ula. <laughs> okay. Um, first, let me, let me tell you that it, it isn't about humanitarian. It's more about, about human development in general. And going back to 1995, 94, 95, I was back then, uh, you know, uh, more uh, studying uh, ecosystem management at the American University of Beirut. And in order to pay uh, my tuition, I was working uh, as a resident DJ in one of the uh, in one of Lebanon's vibrant clubs, and, and I used that's to how we, this is how we hear most people's development careers starting. You know, you start as a <laughs> DJ. And... <laughs> well, DJing is some kind of development. I mean, you have to understand the mentality of the people. You have to. I mean, bit. somebody steps in uh, to the club angry or uh, uh, you know upset, and and you have through good music. Uh, uh, to put him or her in the good mood, but okay, that's beside the point. What happened is that um, on one fine evening, uh, the uh, the drugs police uh, stormed into the club, and uh, you know, uh, they, uh, and drove us into a very humiliating uh, body search. Um, so next morning, uh, going out from the police station at uh, at six in the morning. I was telling myself, well, it's time to uh, quit on music and start something else. That same day, my thesis advisor tells me, well, there's a, there's a scholarship to go in full immersion with the, uh, with the Bedouins, you know, the Bedouins who travel with their uh, flocks across the Arabian desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, it was a six-month total immersion. So I had to be with an early version of the portable computers. I was typing my thesis back then on WordPerfect. I think Windows 2.0 came uh, somewhere along the way. Um, And these six months were really a revelation for me where I discovered how, you know, in a desert where where there's absolutely no livelihood uh, uh, preconditions, there's there's a full anthropological and uh, economic system taking place and and triggered uh, triggered some work back then i joined the environment and sustainable development unit at the american university of beirut um where i'm still until now um, a senior research associate um and the rest is history so projects started uh, coming um, had to be uh, at times uh, at the implementation side. I had to take notes when evaluators or uh, uh, development professionals were conducting focus groups. I then enjoyed between brackets. It's, it's the ugliest, I think, part of the of the work: writing reports and uh, and stuff. Worked on communication for development until bank 2007 evaluation hit me. And were were all of these uh, independent short-term projects like you did as a consultant or were you did you find a proper job quote unquote uh and and sort of built your career there and then jumped or how did that work yeah it it, uh, it worked uh, probably both ways so in the early days i couldn't afford the uh, 
financial insecurity. So I was working full-time uh, at the American University of Beirut. Um, but then around 2001, I said to myself, I'm going to take a big jump. Um, in the meantime, a beautiful lady that is half Lebanese, half Danish has come into my life and said, well, if the problem is, uh, and we're still married 12 years after her name is Leila. Um, after she said, if, if financial security is, uh, is the thing I'm working and I believe in you. And so go take the jump. Um, so I declared myself an independent consultant. The first six months, I got probably six days of work, which were barely enough to cover up the phone bill and the cigarettes. Um, but then uh, slowly, slowly, uh, things started picking up momentum. So uh, until now, where I, you know, have to negotiate my my assignments three or four months in advance in order to uh, to accommodate the clients on the pipeline. Tell us how that you have evolved the way that you win business. Back in the day when you were scraping to, to get cigarettes and pay the phone bill, was it you were just constantly sending out proposals, making phone calls? Was it networking? And how does that differ from how you find work today? Yes. I mean, the problem that uh, new uh, new development professionals face is that uh, most of the interesting assignments, whether intellectually or financially, do have as a prerequisite a certain amount of uh, uh, years of experience or, uh, you know, a uh, number of years in a team leader position or a uh, number of dollars uh, of projects evaluated or, or what have you. So in the early years, it was uh, a bit accepting whatever comes along the way. And um, while doing it, uh, try to deliver the best. So put the touch of excellence so that whomever I'm working with would be convinced to call me back and pay me more. Um, so bit after, I mean, it sounds, uh, it sounds a bit, uh, ideal or, uh, utopic, but it's a bit how things actually took place. So it took maybe three, four years of, you know, uh, being charging for one day, working three or more days, uh, you know, to, to, to have a quality, uh, quality product. Um, and slowly, slowly, uh, the momentum gets built up. And here a warning to the uh, young uh, development professionals that might be listening to us is that in this profession, it's it's just like, uh, like uh, waves and surfing. Sometimes you're on top of the wave, you can see the beach and whomever is there and you're on top of the world. But uh, invariably, after the top, there's a you know, a valley or a cliff or a fall. Uh, the secret is not to drown, keep the head out of the water, and then wait for the uh, for the next wave. Okay, so on that note, tell me about a time when you failed miserably, when you fell off the surfboard and, and went into one of those valleys, or when a project ended and you were sort of left standing. What, oh, how, at, it, is there one that comes to mind, and, and how did you pull yourself out of that and get back on the board? Um, yeah, th th there was, I, I think since 2001 until now, over the past 14 years, there have, there has been like three serious moments of, uh, of the ones, uh, I was describing. The first one, 
was after the euphoria of 2001-2005, where in 2006 I found myself, you know, presenting CVs or negotiations with uh, with projects, but for one reason or another, not really uh, managing to uh, to get the job. And and this is where the point where one starts doubting himself and his capacities. Mm -hmm. I mean, am I not good anymore? Am I not competitive uh, anymore? The the secret is to persevere, I think, um, and to 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 very strongly believe if if you're com we're confident in our uh, in our capacities that brighter days uh, are ahead. Um, a recent stretch was was just now. I mean, between September 2013 and April 2014, where um, you know. I, I was trying to keep a kind of business ethics. So if I tell uh, Stephen that I'm working with you for the next two months, then I wouldn't engage with uh, someone else saying that, okay, if uh, if Stephen uh, doesn't get the job, then in two months, Mark, with whom I'm in negotiations, is going to get it. So what happened is that neither Stephen nor Mark nor Ali uh, uh, nor whomever – managed to to concretize what we were talking about um and the other side of the coin that many of the projects that were negotiated over the past period suddenly started all in one and one go as of april so as of april my week my working week has been probably 6 days my sleeping hours have been probably less than 5 um, so it's it's very very uh, difficult to uh, uh, to plan and, mm. and 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 this profession. Is um, have you had the sense that competition has increased? Has it become more fierce since over the past fifteen years or so, or has it stayed the same? Competition has, in, in terms of you know, an individual people, probably yes. I mean a lot of uh, professionals now know how to write CVs although sometimes I'm called in desperado uh, uh, to, to replace somebody who looks wow on the CV but who actually could not deliver uh, mm. a quarter of what he or she had uh, had promised uh, on the CV. I think that the whole uh, profession uh, has, has diversified uh, a lot um, and there are more opportunities at the entry level, I would say, but it's becoming more and more difficult uh, to cross from an entry level to a medium level to a senior level. Mm. And how – bring me down to the regional or even the country level of where you're at. There's been uh, so much focus on the Middle East, um, Iraq, uh, Jordan, Palestine, uh, Syria, obviously – how has that changed over the last 10 years? Has professionalism increased? Has Have you noticed more and more local experts like yourself? Um, are there more and more expats coming in? Tell me about how the region has changed in the work that you do. Again, very interesting question. And, and the region, it has development has a bit, uh, I would say, and sorry for the term, industrialized. Um, so there's very, there was huge money inflow, you know, for bringing democracy to Iraq. I leave it to you to judge as of today whether Iraq became more democratic or more stable or what have you, or, uh, you know, bringing change uh, or supporting uh, 
the Arab Spring or mitigating uh, the Syrian crisis. It's it's really has become a kind of industrial uh, uh, industrial response where uh, the creativity and the people uh, centered approaches uh, are slowly vanishing uh, or let's say drowning in a um, in a in a haze of of uh, of more corporate approaches uh, uh, to development. In terms of expats or can you, no can, ex- you, can yeah. you just unpack that a little bit more about what do you consider a corporate approach to development? A corporate approach to development is when, you know, a donor comes in. I don't want to touch on, on donors in this sure, interview, but absolutely. a donor comes in with 50 million euros or 50 million dollars and saying, well, this is to improve democracy. Uh, and uh, the firm who has won the contract, which invariably comes from the global north, mm-hmm. um, probably has very little staff who speak Arabic or know the region or what have you, and has uh, 24 months with the possibility of extending for six other months, you know, to make uh, a country more democratic. I mean, does it sound feasible? Um so this is what, what I meant. And, and, uh, this organization comes in with the big bucks, um, uh, which, which tempts those who know or those who can to play the game, uh, and to align what they do and how they think on the big bucks. Um, so the result becomes like if the fashion now is for climate change, everybody is doing climate change mm. because there's money on climate change. If it's democracy, then let it be democracy. If it's governance, then let it be governance. And so on and so forth. Um, while the more uh, grassroots type of thing, if I may refer, for example, to the experience in, in Latin America, uh, which was uh, becoming a bit more pronounced in, in the Arab world, has uh, really regressed. Does that answer your question? I, I, I love it. That's, yeah, I was wondering what your opinion on that was. Is there a, a way to do that differently in your mind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think, for example, if you take one of my darling projects, uh, what I consider to be uh, a major achievement uh, in my career for the, for the past 20 years, which is Eval MENA, the Middle East and North Africa Evaluators Association. It came up uh, from uh, finding that, you know, if you want to talk evaluation to, uh, to a client, uh, most, most of the time, the matching terms, you know, how do you uh, describe an outcome? How, uh, you know, uh, uh, you, set up, uh, you set up a monitoring framework, uh, uh, et cetera, um, has, been, uh, has been missing. So uh, we kind of brought together a collective effort uh, uh, under the uh, American University of Beirut to try and think of evaluation from an indigenous, if I may use the term, uh, perspective. And there were plenty of surprises. Like uh, I remember sometimes in 2008, we were in the process of Arabizing outcome mapping. So go figure out how would you translate outcome, but most, most importantly, mapping. A map mm. in Arabic is kharita. Kharita is from the Latin karta, you know, with a bit of khe and re, and, uh, and it becomes an Arab word. Because 
uh, and the uh, and the Arab culture, uh, since the the desert looks alike and the sand dunes keep on moving, you look at the stars rather than at the topography to kind of establish uh, uh, your direction. So Arabs were much more averse uh, in astronomy than they were in uh, in geography. So they could do a sky map, you know which has a technical name that I don't know. You'll have to excuse me, but they they wouldn't do a geographic map, a charita. Um, so we thought, looking at outcome mapping, that we're going to call it evaluation for change. And to our uh, bad luck, uh, one of the first pilots was supposed to take place in Tunisia during the Ben Ali days. Um, and we had prepared a nice hotel with a big banner, you know, saying evaluation for change. And we were setting up the room uh, on Sunday before the workshop starts on Monday when four uh, Secret Services officers stormed into the room and said, well, what's, what's, what's that term? Tahir? Change? Mm. Who do you want to change? What do you want to change? Um, we tried over maybe 60 minutes to explain that, you know, change and the positive uh, spirit and that we're not touching at uh, Ben Ali and his inspired eternal leadership. Nevertheless, we were picked to the police station and uh, not released until midnight probably when we agreed to change evaluation for change and to evaluation for improvement. So it became from At-Taqim min ajl al-Taghir, which is change, it became At-Taqim min ajl al-Tatwir, which is improvement. So everybody wants to improve, nobody wants to change. Um, and to prove their goodwill, the, uh, the police officers had to wake up uh, uh, one um, and, uh, a calligraphist who does these big banners uh, to work at night and, and get us a new banner so that it could be there right on time and we were featured in the newspaper with the new uh, with the new banner. Uh, so just to tell you that the nuances uh, uh, and the daily experiences differ uh, differ significant, significantly. And at least in Evalmena, we're trying to address the blonde with blue eyes syndrome. I'm looking at your picture. You don't have blue eyes, Stephen? I, I, you do? I do. Oh, shit. Blonde with blue eyes. Okay. <laughs> um, so we're trying, you know, to replace it like... Uh, because in the evaluation function, a, a consultant who's flown in for two, three weeks, you know, has 15, 18, 20, 30 days to understand the complexity of a multi-million dollar project and then to provide uh, opinion on effectiveness and efficiency and design and impact and sustainability is unlikely to be as good as someone who lives the daily nuances of things Uh and um, we've been we've been trying to build up this critical mass of uh, of professional evaluators at the same time learning and you know trying to not to pose ourselves as an alternative to uh, uh, imported uh, between brackets consultants but rather as a complement or as an addition or rather as a, uh, another way uh, to that. And so far, it seems it's working beautifully. Hmm. What about the the other way around? Have you found yourself pigeonholed in the Middle East? I, I've seen on your CV that you've worked in uh, throughout Africa and, and some of the Mediterranean region. Have you tried or have you 
received opportunity, let's just say in you know Sub-Saharan Africa or Central Asia or Southeast Asia or anything like that? Um, yes, yes, yes. I've been receiving these opportunities more and more, although, you know, it's probably 10, 20% of the work and mostly on, on global initiatives. But when it comes to the nitty gritty work, then yes, it's a uh, pigeonholing. <laughs> Is that a, is that a happy pigeonholing for you, or is that frustration? Well, it depends how happy how happy it can be. Like you know, Yemen is called Al Yemen side, the happy Yemen. But I, you know, is it happier? I don't know. Uh, no, it's been it's been quite good. And with the network of Evalmena, I take the opportunity when I get uh, work across the uh, the Arab region to kind of connect it with some. Uh, uh, additional work with the uh, evaluation associations that are present uh, in this country. So I see uh, the positive, the, uh, the positive aspect of things. But also when working on meta evaluations, like we've uh, worked on uh, on a very interesting assignment on uh, complementarity and, and Finnish ODA over the past uh, ten years, and this was truly global. So. My duty stations were uh, 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 Laos and Kenya. Um, right now, I'm engaged with a very interesting project with uh, the OECD on uh, enhancing uh, donor uh, partner evaluations. And that's also taking place globally. So I'm looking at countries like Sri Lanka, Cameroon, uh, Colombia, which is, which is quite interesting and rewarding as well. Fantastic. You, as an evaluator, evaluation has become an increasingly important and focused on topic within development humanitarian aid. As an evaluator, uh, two questions. Have you found frustration in when your recommendations are presented to an organization that they're not, they're not implemented? Or is there a way that you uh, present your findings to ensure that they're acted upon? Well, yes, plenty of frustration. As an evaluator, you're not expected to say that this project has failed miserably. At best, you're entitled to say that things have been, uh, could have been better. And try, you know, in very diplomatic and total nonsense terms, uh, try to explain that it was worth nothing and, uh, uh, you know, while stacking, uh, stacking up literature. I've encountered uh, some frustrations uh, around the way. Um, what I try to do differently is to bring in complexity on the table by explaining to whomever wanted to change the world with uh, three or five million dollars, uh, a five-team uh, five core staff and, you know, one topic, uh, that the world cannot be changed, that you can contribute to change, but you cannot attribute to yourself this change, and that you should look at the learning curve along the way and see what do you leave behind in terms of uh, practices and in terms of legacy, less in terms of infrastructure to development, if you see what I mean, more in terms of thinking differently and acting differently. And uh, those who hide, who hide behind the rigid frameworks often do appreciate this. 
So it's more of an academic approach. See what you can contribute to the literature and the learning and the what's your no, small no, piece. No. See what see what you can contribute underground. So mm. if you're trying to prom to promote uh, new democratic practices, it doesn't really matter to me if you've done a radio campaign and if you've published billboards and if you you've trained 90 organizations. What really is important is to try to understand the transformational processes that took place in these 90 organizations. Mm. And if your log frame says, said 90 organizations, but I could find 10 who are doing things the right way and who could capitalize on what they learned, it's more important or as important to me as, you know, achieving your target of training the 90 without any, uh, any further follow-up to that. An emerging practice that is of interest is what what is called the management response. So more and more uh, organizations are compelled to provide a management response to the evaluation findings. And this is where it becomes interesting because organizations then are compelled to become uh, more self-critical and to acknowledge uh, the findings that were flashed on the evaluation and how they're going to address them. Hmm. I'd like to turn a bit more towards how you structure your work right now. How do you manage your day? You've got a couple of different projects. You have to continue to build your personal practice. Uh, that is win new business. You have to do the administration on the back end. Are there tools or tricks or techniques that you've incorporated into your life that have made that either more efficient or more easy? So far, I didn't manage to quit on smoking, which would make my uh, <laughs> my professional approach to things more healthy. Apart from that, uh, my typical day is divided, let's say, uh, can you imagine that back in 94 when somebody asked me if I had an email, I had to ask him to, to write, how do you spell email on a piece mm. of paper? And less than 20 years later now, 25% of the day is eaten up on answering emails, you know, reading emails, sending emails, um, answering emails. I, I try also to dedicate about 10 to 15% of my work uh, uh, as part of my personal corporate social responsibility uh, to the development of the evaluation profession, whether through Evalmena, previously through the International uh, Development Evaluation Association IDEAS, and more recently, Eval Partners and IOC. Um, so this is a kind of sacred part. Um, the other part, uh, yeah, I mean, the, there's stuff that needs to be done during the day, but unfortunately, there are reports and readings and uh, reviews uh, that also need need to take place. So most of the time, if I'm in the field during the day, I try to get the pit stop, see the family if I'm in Lebanon, and then go back to the office at least two or three times a week for a 9 p.m., 2 a.m. Uh, jam session, mm. like the one we're starting tonight with you and uh, is, is, is going is to continue. Uh, the difficult part for independent consultants is that you're wrapping up your previous assignment, you're in the middle of your current assignment, and you're either writing proposals or sending CVs or uh, what have you for your future assignment. So there's this entire continuum, and uh, due to the unstable nature of the of the consulting work, you cannot afford to say, I'm going to finish one thing, and then... Uh, 
I'm gonna look for a new opportunity. I'm gonna do it, finish it, and move to the other one. I tried to do it um, few few years ago, but it's really impossible to plan it in that in that uh, clear cut session. Um, so in summary, yeah, the day is a mishmash of uh, uh, you know uh, answering emails, reading literature. Um, doing uh, stuff in the field, conducting meetings, plenty of planes along the way, and at night writing and grasping uh, and what have you. What I find particularly uh, relevant is, uh, you know, the discussions that take place on some professional uh, uh, listservs like the uh, uh, Outcome Mapping Learning Community or the Pelican Community or the Evalmena listserv, what have you, where uh, colleagues do some kind of peer-to-peer distance uh, learning. Um, and it, it really opens up uh, insights. Two more questions for you. First, I asked you earlier about a time that you either failed or that you sort of fell on your face. Is there a story that you, you know, either, let's just say you and I are meeting to have a coffee or a tea sometime in the near future or, uh, or you're meeting a good friend and there's that one story that you always want to tell about that time when I was in X country? What's, what's that story that pops up for you? <laughs> I mean... Often consultants, when they meet for coffee or for dinner, their stories revolve around, uh, first of all, their count, uh, cultural encounters with, uh, with new countries, uh, then invariably about personal uh, positive and negative stories, and finally, uh, work stories. Um, my, my one story uh, in work would be... Uh, after spending my my uh, my entire immersion with the with the Bedouins, um, I came back, uh, started building this evaluation and development career, um, and then when I was getting married, we had a huge debate on whether they should be invited to that fancy five star uh, hotel where the wedding was taking place and where my uh, my mother-in-law insisted on having a violin player and uh, rose petals in the uh, in the swimming pool. While my, while my friends are used, uh, you know, to the folk tradition uh, uh, that that makes up the Bedouin culture. Um, so in the end, reluctantly, I said I'm going to invite three out the, the the three main leaders, like the chief of the tribe and uh, his two sons, with whom I was. Uh, interacting on daily basis. Uh, but to my surprise, they, they arrive, all of them, on a bus, uh, <laughs> with, uh, three, uh, three called cheap rug that is still in our living room, six by six handmade by the women of the tribe as my wedding gift. And then 40 of them with their musical instrument. And that was a wow. Uh, Everybody, you know, left the violin and the rose petals and uh, started mingling with them. The, the hotel management was, of course, not very happy in the beginning. But when they saw that even the guests of the hotel were coming down and taking pictures and dancing, everybody was living happily ever after. <laughs> that is <laughs> a fantastic probably... story. <laughs> <laughs> a wedding almost gone awry. Yeah, you know, a, a violin wedding gone 
Gone table, gone the big drum, you know. <laughs> my big fat Bedouin wedding, I guess. Yes, my big fat Bedouin wedding, exactly. <laughs> Ziad, my last question for you is one that we ask everyone uh, on the on the podcast here is, as someone who's gone through the trenches of having this career and successfully jumping into an independent professional career, what advice would you give to either a young person who's thinking about a career in development or humanitarian aid or someone who's thinking about a career change? Is there a critical piece of advice you'd give them about how to be successful or what to watch out for? Yes, I would say keep your integrity and stick to the standards of excellence. That might sound as a cliche, but this is a bit what what happened uh, with me. I mean, we're sometimes tempted to trade our ideas just to fit in the values of uh, our next employer or uh, the next project we're going to be working on. I mean, the project ends, but life continues. So, And uh, rather than being seen as a mercenary, because in our profession, Especially at the independent level, there's, there's a dimension of, of mercenaries. We're selling our time to whomever is uh, convinced that we can bring in an added value, uh, and help them and their project. But, uh, uh, you know, we keep on moving from one assignment to another. So if there's not an integrity red tape that links the entire, uh, assignments, then it's, uh, it's quite, quite dangerous. Uh, the other thing about standards of excellence is that while there are many or very many development professionals, there are quite a few excellent development professionals. And in an increasingly competitive uh, world, uh, only the excellent survives. Um, so for anybody stepping in uh, newly, she or he has to provide the their very best shot to things and keep on having the drive of providing their very best shot to things, even if they make it big or even if, uh, you know, uh, they become heavily solicited. Because the moment we stop delivering excellence, somebody else is waiting for his or her turn and, and will invariably take our place. Ziad, thank you so very much for your time today. Thanks a lot, Stephen, and uh, for, for, for hosting me uh, on, this, uh, on this lovely chat. You've been listening to Terms of Reference, a weekly podcast from aidpreneur.com. Find us on iTunes or at www.aidpreneur.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.